Welcome to episode 80 of the Ski Podcast and thanks for joining us listener. We've got lots of ski related chat for you in this episode including a St Anton update, how to find the right ski boot for you, some Olympic chat with Graham Bell, uh, the latest rules on uh, Covid and travelling and whether it's possible to take not just your ski holidays flight free but all of your holidays flight free. I've got one request for you, listener. If you do enjoy the podcast, just get someone else to listen to it too. You know, share it on Facebook or or WhatsApp or send someone an email and get them to have a listen. That would be great. Now, I'd like to thank Switzerland Tourism for sponsoring the podcast. I generally couldn't do the podcast without their support. So why not take a holiday in Switzerland this winter? Here's a topical idea for you. Murren. I'm thinking about going out to Marin to do the Inferno, but you could go out there and have a look at the Piz Gloria restaurant. It's a revolving restaurant, and in 1969, it was the location of Belofeld's base in the James Bond film On Her Majesty's Secret Service. And uh, weirdly, uh, Blofeld's plan was to achieve world domination by spreading a killer virus. Uh, more positively, it includes the greatest ski chase in cinema history, and there's avalanche and bobsleigh excitement. So have a look at the show notes for more, and uh, highly recommend Murren. Now, my name's Martin, Ian Martin, and let me introduce my guest today. Joining us for the second time is Andy Butterworth, who made us very jealous last season with his tales of waist-deep powder in St Anton. Hi, Andy. How are you? Hi, Ian. Very well. Thank you very much. Although after that, I think I'm wishing I was in Murren. <laughs> Excellent. And I'm delighted to uh, welcome first-time guest Helen Coffey, who is travel editor at The Independent. Hi, Helen. How are you? Hi, I'm great. Thanks. Yeah. Excellent. Well, great to have you on the uh, podcast. Traditionally, we like to start off by asking you when you skied or snowboarded last. Now, sadly, Andy, I'm pretty sure I know the answer to your one, but go on, make us all jealous and tell us about it. The last time I skied was the end of last winter, so so April, on empty slopes with nobody around, which was actually quite quite lovely. Um, and if all goes to plan, um, I'll, I might be skiing next weekend on the Hintertux Glacier in Austria, which would be quite nice. We'll have to go and have a look and see if the snow's um, as good as it's cracked up to be at the moment. Right. Well, actually, I shared some pictures yesterday of 30 centimetres of new snow on the Hintertux Glacier, so that uh, looks <laughs> sounds quite encouraging. So yeah. you're going to be making us jealous again. What about yourself, Helen? When did you last ski or snowboard? Well, I'm incredibly jealous of Andy because <laughs> I have not skied since before the pandemic. Um, I managed to go right at the end of the 2019 season. So that was in Sierra Nevada in Spain. Um First time skiing there, it was honestly one of my favourite, favourite ever skiing experiences. I loved it. Um, so I'm absolutely desperate to get back this winter. It's probably the longest I've been without skiing for many, many years, which I mean, I know that's an incredible position of privilege to be in. But um, yes, I really, really can't wait to go back. Yeah, I mean, it's not an uncommon story for people who've appeared on the podcast that their last skiing could be uh, that long ago. Just uh, out of interest, I've skied in the uh, Pyrenees, in the French and Spanish Pyrenees, but not in the Sierra Nevada. What? How would you describe it? What's it like there? Um, it's just such a different atmosphere because it's really far south. Like, it's quite near the sea. So you can drive up from Malaga, I believe, in like a couple of hours. So technically, you could go swimming in the morning and then skiing in the afternoon, which would be quite ambitious. But I just love that as a concept. And sort of when you're looking out, you do see this sort of kind of rugged brown kind of uh, landscape that is very at odds with being in the Alps or something. So I just found all of that, the otherness of it, really delightful. 
Excellent. Well, it's different experiences like that that we always like to try. Maybe we'll have to have you back to talk about that one in more detail. What we will talk about now, we're just going to talk a little bit about more when we can get to go skiing this winter. And I'm delighted to be joined again by Katie Crow from Battleface Travel Insurance. Uh, hi, Katie. How are you? Hi, Ian. I'm great. Thanks. Uh, now, I'm guessing you haven't skied since we last spoke, but um, what are your thoughts about the prospects uh, for how travel and skiing are looking for this winter? Yeah, absolutely. I unfortunately haven't been skiing like Helen since pre-pandemic times. Um, March 2019, I was in Chamonix. But um, after now over 18 months of restrictions, the travel route rules are at long last looking um, much more in favour of fans of the slopes. So, yeah, we've got... Um, Austria and Norway that were recently added to the government's green list in August. And then we have Canada and Switzerland as well that um, were also added. But now with the, with the lifting of, lifting of um, most restrictions, um, it's looking really good. Yeah. And I think uh, when we spoke before, we talked about some surveys you've done, which talked about the cost of testing deterring people from travel. But as of um, earlier this week, I think I'm right in saying that there is no pre-return uh, test required for double vaccinated people now. So that will uh, bring the cost down of uh, any trip overseas fairly significantly. Yeah, that's right. Um, Pre-departure tests were scrapped for the fully vaccinated from October the 4th. And um, from late October, They'll only need to take a lateral flow test on day two of their arrival, as, a, as opposed to the most costly PCR tests. Um, so that's really good news. We're still awaiting to hear when that's going to happen and whether that's going to happen in time for half term. Um, meanwhile, unvaccinated travellers must take a COVID test before boarding a flight, take a PCR test within 48 hours of arriving back into the UK and another test on day eight. But we're hoping that's going to be, be scrapped. Uh, and in fact, uh, I think I've read somewhere that they're su suggesting that all tests on return for fully vaccinated uh, travellers might be dropped by January. But those other tests for non-vaccinated uh, people will, will still apply. And I think just to clarify, if you've got children travelling with fully vaccinated parents, then they would not have to take tests, pre-return tests as well? That's right. Yeah. And nor would they have to quarantine as well. There was a bit of um, uh, misunderstanding in the press about quarantine and what was happening. But no, children will not have to quarantine upon return if they're unvaccinated. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. you know, that definitely looks good for family ski holidays and for skiing holidays for people who are uh, vaccinated. And I think we've got the US back on the cards as well. I'm, I'm not 100 percent sure whether that's all been clarified uh, yet, whether you can travel now to the States. Is that right? Well, that's interesting. Yeah, because, um, you know, a few weeks ago, we heard that the US will reopen in November to air travellers from 33 countries, including China, India and Brazil, and most of Europe, who are, who are fully vaccinated against COVID-19. Um, but they hadn't given a, an exact date. And this week, the Telegraph reported that um, the sl slated November date for the reopening to British and European travellers was plunged into uncertainty. Um, amid reports that discussions to end the travel ban had hit complications. So we're yet to hear what's happening over there. OK, well, that's that's less certain. But what um, some good news that was announced last week, which I found very encouraging, is uh, people, uh, regular listeners to the show, will know we've talked about the past sanitaire in France that you've needed to show. It's like a COVID certificate you need to show to go into uh, restaurants, etc. And there were a lot of questions about whether you'd need to show that to go skiing because Austria and Italy have said that you would need to have some kind of COVID certificate to be able to go skiing. And in France, they've said, if 
um, pandemic, uh, the situation allows, then there'll be no pass sanitaire required uh, this winter, which is which is very positive. More complicated is the situation for children, I think, in countries like um, Austria and Italy. Do you have any thoughts or news on that, Katie? Yeah, I've heard that um, Austria has put in place a range of new restrictions on winter sports ahead of the coming season, as you said. Um, it's a 3G rule, so tested, vaccinated and recovered, and describes the three ways people can provide evidence that they are immune to the virus. So only those that can demonstrate this are, um, and, and that they're in one of those three categories can actually visit Christmas markets, take part in winter sports, take cable cars, visit bars, restaurants and hotels. So. It's a very complex situation, um, and I would recommend that you, you know you, you really read um, what the what the regulations are in advance of booking any trip. Sure. Well, we happen to have a, a, an Austrian resident in the room with us uh, at the moment. Uh, why don't you start off, Andy, by telling us what three G stands for? I'm guessing that you know that. Um, I do, and you put me right on the spot. I've got it here, getestet, but I can't pronounce it well. Getestet, geimpft, and genesen. That's exactly right. Well, well, well done. Genesen, getestet, and geimpft. So, if you're va vaccinated, if you recovered, or you've got a you know, you've got a test with you. Um, so, yeah, it's it's almost exactly as Katie said. I think that's the understanding that we've certainly had over here. So certainly, what we've had and passing out info to to guests, you know, as as, as a tour operator. But I, I think there's still quite a bit of umming and ahhing. There's still decisions to be made. I think from what I've understood, the, the these are the sort of like national rules, but the local gemeinders, the local councils are going to be given the the power to sort of enforce restrictions as they best see fit. If if they decide to go to a 1G, like a, 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 you, you just have to have a one a, a vaccination, for example, the, the local gemeinder can actually, or, or the, the region, can actually can actually decide that and, and and bring that rule into effect, which is what they're very much talking about doing in Saint Anton. Right. Okay. I mean that is interesting. I was talking to one of the tour operators in France who was saying that they buy their lift passes in bulk and give them direct to their uh, clients. So it would all be almost impossible for them to try and ascertain or to do the uh, the checking to see if uh, their guests had been vaccinated or not. Helen, I wonder if I could come to you. I mean, how do you see this going? Because clearly, in terms of travel, the ability to go back and forth or to go out to the outs and go on lifts, what's your sense for the direction that it's going in the different countries? Um, it's, it's a really interesting question because I write about these rules all the time. And then when you actually travel, you see how they're put into practice really varies from country to country. Some of them are, I would say, incredibly lax about it. And you'll read the rules and be like, oh, my goodness, if I don't have X, Y, Z, they're not going to let me in. Um, France is a great example because I'm just going to say they have a very laissez-faire attitude to the whole thing. Uh, well, that's what I noticed anyway. And um, when I... I we'll talk more about this later, but came back from Morocco. They didn't even check I was vaccinated. And technically, Morocco is on their red list, and therefore I should have been quarantining if I wasn't. But they were just like, come on in, it's all good. <laughs> so it's hard to take a blanket approach because it really does depend on where you're going and how much they're going to enforce the rules they've even put in place, I would say. And with ski resorts, I mean, they're going to be so desperate to have people back. Now, that doesn't mean that they're not going to enforce things, but 
logistically as you say if you've got bulk buying of passes and it's it's you know how realistic is it that they can actually go through and and check everyone i don't know we'll we'll have to see but i do know that they'll be doing everything they can to try and get people back yeah i mean what was suggested to me by someone else is we we went to france in the summer and equally i'm going to add to your point helen that it's incredibly frustrating when you've done all of these uh, tests and paperwork and no one checks it properly it's a bit like when i get on the train to london and no one checks my train ticket However, this summer when we went to our campsite, uh, or a couple of campsites in France, what they did was they checked our paperwork to start off with and then gave us a wristband and then we could go wherever we wanted to in the actual campsite, the swimming pool and the uh, communal areas, etc. And they were suggesting that maybe that's how it could be employed uh, in, in ski resorts so that when you get your pass, you show it. But equally, it was suggested to me that they might just have random tests, random stops uh, for people on the lifts at different points, which sounds like an awful uh, possible experience but maybe one day of doing it any any thoughts on that helen wow i mean i haven't heard of that that sounds sort of terrifying doesn't it you're going along <laughs> having a lovely holiday and then someone just comes and jabs a swab up your nose um, <laughs> <laughs> i suppose then the question is, you know what what then happens do you have to wait during the spot test for half an hour for your result if, if it's positive do they have to like escort you down the slope to some kind of facility uh, it sounds like you'd need quite a lot in place to make something like that work i i recently was in amsterdam and they you have to take a test every 24 hours um if you're not if they don't recognize your vaccine passport which they don't recognize ours at the moment um but that was quite a smooth process so i didn't mind so much. i mean i'd rather in a way it was kind of this regimented thing that you have to take it every so often and then you get your result and you you're good to go than just being stopped on the street as it were right okay andy were you going to say something about that yeah just like going back to to, to last winter um when I'm lucky enough to be able to ski in a resort that was empty they they tried to implement these sort of like spot checks on the mountain. I don't think it really worked last year. They they did have the police up there a few times checking people, but it wasn't very hard to catch people because there'd only be about nine people on the mountain anyway. So, so it was actually quite easy to do. Um, how, how they would do that, you know, as as, as Helen said, then how they would do that in a, on a in, a in a busy resort and how they would actually implement it, I I I've no idea. I I know that what they've talked about here is what you mentioned earlier, Ian, was um on on your lift passes they. Then they're only going to issue a three-day or above lift pass with proof of a um, proof of a double vaccination. Um, if it's one a one or two-day pass, you're going to have to show a PCR test. Anything three days or over, you're going to have to show as you as you actually buy the pass, you have to show your your vaccine certificate, which chucks in all those problems for for tour operators. But just quickly to go on to like the the, the checks, I think like. Again, what everyone said, like traveling in, in, in internationally has been pretty easy um, and checks have been pretty slack. But just from experience in resort here this summer, the, the bars, the restaurants, the cafes, the lift offices, the, the, they've been re really on it. So everyone has had to be checked when you've gone into a, a bar restaurant. And if you haven't had a test or haven't got your certificate, they have these, you know, the, the, the swabs. And as Helen said, they jab them up your nose and 10 minutes later, you, you, you've got a result that you can go into the restaurant. Right. Katie, did you want to add to that? Yeah, I guess the big question is surrounding children, really, isn't it? You know, are they going to need regular antigen tests um, if they're unvaccinated? Because the vaccination rollout is only just happening now. And as Ian said, they're only getting one jab. 
Yeah, well, I think this is going to be probably a bit like uh, uh, all of our conversations in the podcast last autumn, where we were discussing uh, almost endlessly: Will ski resorts open for this winter? Will we find out? Will it go? And we had lots, spent lots and lots of time talking about it. It was very interesting. Eventually, we found out. So eventually, we'll find out. And I think we'll move on now. Katie, thanks very much for joining us again, and hopefully, you'll be back uh, in a couple of weeks to update us on the latest situation. Lovely to meet you all. Right, Helen, uh, um, I mentioned the phrase Travmin in episode 79. I'm a huge uh, fan of that phrase, which I came across in one of your articles where you're talking about all the different bits of uh, paperwork that you are required to have with you when you uh, cross borders. So it's really great to uh, to have you here. Um, another phrase I liked in one of your articles was the travel folder of dreams. Uh, I'm, I'm a big, uh, oh, I was a big believer when I was traveling in the summer, print everything out, don't rely on having it uh, on your phone. Now, both of those cropped up as part of your preparation for a, a mega trip. Uh, now, for listeners uh, who might not have heard about it, could you tell us a little bit more about, you know, where you've just been and uh, and all the tests you needed along the way? Yeah, sure. Um, so it was a trip to Morocco. Um, I signed up for the 2020 and 2021 UK flight free pledge, uh, which means I'm not taking any flights. Um, obviously, it was easier than normal last year. No one was really taking any flights. Um, but this year, uh, obviously, we've had a bit more opportunity to go away. And so I wanted to do a big trip. And originally, my plan before all of this pandemic nonsense came along was to take a cargo ship to America. And obviously, that's been just completely um, a washout because they haven't let us in for such a long time. And they still won't. And hopefully, they will next month. But we don't even have a date. So I had to rethink. And I thought, well, I'd still like to do another continent uh, let's try Africa. Normally, um, it would be quite a swift boat across from Spain. It only takes about 90 minutes, but they've actually closed the sea border between Morocco and Spain at the moment, um, which they both are like, oh, it's pa the pandemic. But it really doesn't have anything to do with that because the air border is open. So it's more a political thing fueled by migrants. There's all kinds of issues there. But anyway, so it means... How can you get there now if you're not buying? Well, you can get a boat from Italy or from France. So I thought, okay, great. I'll get the train down to Marseille. I'll get the boat over. It takes 40 hours-ish to get to Tangier. And then I'll spend a couple of days there, a couple of days in Fez, a couple of days in Rabat, which is the capital, and then come back on the boat again, which amazingly all went completely smoothly I still can't believe it happened really every point of the journey I was expecting something to go completely wrong and presumably then a lot during the course of that trip you had to take several tests along the way not before you left and before you crossed different borders yeah I think it was all together um in the end so it had to get have a negative PCR to get on the boat, which the timing of it worked out, I actually did in the UK. So I was on the train in France thinking, if it comes back positive, that's just the entire trip gone. Like, there's nothing to be done. It's over. Uh, thankfully, it wasn't. It was negative. But it was a real, you know, it's a, it is an extra layer of anxiety that we've never had to traveling before, like the sort of one uncontrollable element. Um, and then, then when I was there, absolutely fine. Didn't need to test at all. 
but needed a test to get back on the boat to France, even though I was double vaccinated, which felt a bit discriminatory because if I was flying to France from Morocco, they wouldn't have needed a test. But anyway, they came up with a different rule for boats. Um, and then I needed a test, obviously, to get back into the UK because this was prior to our rule change that you talked about earlier. And then I needed my day two PCR when I was back here as well. So it felt like, I mean, I've never felt more healthy is the wrong word, but never felt more <laughs> confident I didn't have COVID in my life. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, I've had that as well. Certainly the first time I came back from France, I had to do the day, well, I did end, end up doing a day two, five and eight test. And yes, I never felt more confident having been double vaccinated as well, that I was uh, uh, healthy along the way. But it sounds like a pretty uh, epic uh, trip, even if it wasn't uh, to the mountains. But I think I'm right in saying that you spent quite a lot of your career in the ski industry. How did that segue into your current role at The Independent? Yeah, that's my my background, really. I um, I started out my second job in journalism was um at the telegraph on the telegraph ski and snowboard team so i i started as a junior sub editor uh fresh and plucky and worked my way up to sort of staff writer and then eventually online editor for all of their ski and snowboard uh, content so i my first love really is is the mountains um i only moved on really because I love skiing and snowboarding, but you do find you end up in a bit of a niche where I spent a lot of time writing about new chairlifts that are opening, which <laughs> don't get me wrong. I hey. love it when they replace a slow two man for a fast six man. It's exciting. But um, <laughs> I just this, is, this is this is this uh, is my my day to day world, you know, in digital marketing. I write a lot of blog posts about what's new in Lehman Weir, what's uh, new in Courcheval, etc. And there's a lot of lifts. I can give you uh, I can tell you exactly how many more people they'll carry per hour and what the uh, the vertical ascent will be but there is a possibly a limit to that it's more interesting to write the broader pieces right yeah I think so and you you know ski sits within that so I still do get to go skiing you know aside from this weird couple of years um and still get to write about it so I feel like I get the best of both but it's yeah it's nice to kind of do a bit more broad work um so yeah, I had a few months at the the Express as a as a travel reporter, and then started at the Independent as a as a deputy travel editor about four and a half years ago, and recently became editor. So yeah, it's been a nice journey. That's great. I actually uh, I was just doing a little bit of research. I saw on your LinkedIn profile it said you were writing five articles a day when you're on the Express. We like to call it the churn in journalism, or journalism, you might say, when you're just churning out stories, obviously of very high quality always, but, um, you know, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't really miss that those days, particularly. Yeah. Exactly. And, and so you, you, are you a skier or a snowboarder? I'm a skier. I tried snowboarding once and um, I think I could enjoy it, but I, I'll, I'll just hold my hands up and say it's very difficult as an adult to try and learn a new skill that you will be bad at for a while and persevere with it, um, which is, you know, obviously a really bad thing to say. But I think we're not used to being bad at things when we're grown ups. <laughs> and I just really hard. Yeah, I understand that one. I've, I've recently started playing cricket again. It takes it's uh, it's quite humbling, you know, when you're used to being quite good at things and uh 
and trying to learn again. Have you ever worked out in the Alps or uh, you spent much time in the Alps? Uh, yeah, I did a ski season after uni, actually, um, in Les Arcs. So, and I haven't been back since. So I'm really hoping to maybe go back this winter. Um, that would be amazing. But me and my mate did it. And it was the most kind of lazy, jammy way of doing a season. Um, because we both got jobs. This, I don't know if they do this anymore. But the big tour ops used to have a role called a weekend rep. And you wouldn't get paid anything, um, but they would take care of your accommodation, your skis, your lift pass, and you would just work weekends. So, which arguably is obviously the worst bit to work. <laughs> so you are working hard because you're doing like 24 hour days, doing transfer buses, selling people lift passes. It was horrible. But then Monday to Friday, we just skied and that's all we did the entire time. So uh yeah it was a really really fabulous way of doing it if you couldn't be bothered to work full time yeah i think arguably i mean lots of people would say that being a kitchen porter kp is the best job because you have no responsibility and you can get out really quickly and uh, spend lots of time on the hill but i think like that the busiest days on the mountain are often saturday and uh, sunday or certainly sunday uh, anyway so you could get the benefits of that sounds like a good way of doing it and you mentioned les arcs uh, there and you, you said you're hoping to get out to Les Arc. One thing I know about uh, Les Arc is it's very easy to get to by train. And you mentioned earlier that uh, you've you're a signatory to uh, Flight Free UK's declaration to not take any flights at all. You know, I've signed tourism declares. I'm allowing myself one flight a year, and it's quite hard, you know, trying to make uh, uh, that work. But Les Arc's very easy to get to by train. I've done it a, a bunch of times. But I'm thinking. You must be the only travel editor out there who's committed not to take any flights at all. And I know recently there's a, a new policy at The Independent on travel coverage uh, with a focus on sustainability. Do you want to explain a little bit more about that? Yeah, it's really exciting, actually. Um, well, for me anyway, hopefully for other people as well, um, because I think we are at this point where people are taking this stuff a lot more seriously. Um, sustainability in, in all kind of areas of life and I thought we need to really take a lead on it um, especially in travel because we you know we contribute a lot emissions wise we also give back a lot in terms of benefit and positive stuff but we need to we need to really look at that and and weigh it up and see how we can get the balance so that the, the positive is higher than the negative. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're reframing the way we look at it. One of the things is that with all our destination guides, features, whatever, we've always had in the, in the fact box at the end, getting there, and it always says, you can fly from X to X with this airline. Um, and we're not getting rid of that, but we're always now giving a flight-free option first. So it's called trying to fly less, we've got an option and then fine with flying and the option for that and sometimes it will be completely outlandish and I don't really expect anyone to do it it might be like well when uh, when the pandemic restrictions lift you can get a cargo ship all the way round to the Middle East and it will take you you know 40 days or whatever um, and then sometimes it will be very realistic like getting the train to those up um, which is is really easy and really nice to do 
And so it's just about shifting people's mindset, um, inspiring them, making them think twice about whether they need to fly or not, um, and just uh, and trying to normalise the idea of not getting on a plane as well, where you don't have to. You know, instead of it being this outlandish thing, it being quite mainstream. You're obviously preaching to the converted from uh, my point of view, because regular listeners will know I travel out by train quite a lot, and I set up a lobbying group called Ski Flight Free also run a few sustainability sessions and I find it really interesting that we're talking this week after Google have uh, just announced this week that uh, if you do a flight search they're going to be detailing the uh, carbon emissions for each particular flight to so you could compare between different airlines for example I mean obviously it would be a lot better if you didn't uh, fly instead if you really wanted to cut your emissions but Google is giving you that information and I also read this week they're talking about uh, on Google Maps, what they're going to do is they're going to default to the journey with the lowest carbon emissions based on the the hills uh, and the requirements of the journey itself. And a couple of weeks ago, they also have said that with hotels, they're going to start putting in information about sustainability policies of hotels in the search results. So all of these things, you know, they are important to consumers. And there's been a lot of uh, research which has shown that particularly post-pandemic, I think that people have a greater appreciation of nature and their environment and are more willing to to make changes, uh, you know, to do something about it. So it feels like you're, um, you know, in line with a growing trend there, I think. Yeah, I really hope so. And you're right. I think that stuff with Google is really positive and really shows the way the tide is turning. Um, and actually, yeah, the more the more we just put it in front of people and they realise it's something they need to think about, uh, the better, really. Because for a long time, I, I think we've, we've separated out travel purely because no one wants to think about the bad side of it when they're planning a nice holiday, you know. They're just... They want to get excited and there's nothing wrong with that. But equally, I, we're at a point where we can no longer pretend that we are somehow separate from this conversation because we're not. I attended a, a, a webinar yesterday uh, where there was a chap on from Ruka in Finland who was talking about all the measures that they've done. And one of the things they said is that uh, they don't want to focus on flight shame and make people feel bad about taking holidays, but they do want them to make them think about how they're going to travel to the resort and see if there are other ways that they can do it in a more environmentally friendly way. And actually, you know, that all fits in around a lot of conversations we've been having recently, because on the last podcast, episode 79, I interviewed uh, the CEO of Travel Ski, and we have the new Travel Ski Express, which is uh, the direct train going out to the French Alps also blogged this week on Ski Flight Free about the the only overnight train that exists at the moment to the Alps to Briançon, where you can go to Ser Chevalier Mont Genève. And then I immediately after that, I read that uh, SNCF are introducing an overnight train to go out to Tarbes, which would give you access to the French Pyrenees as well. So there are, you know, more and more options, you know, appearing as well, which is which is great. So certainly be following all of that very closely, uh, Helen. And thanks for, very much for that. I'm going to move on to uh, Andy now, if I can. One of the uh, things I noticed this week is it is still possible to take the train um, overnight to Austria. You've got the night jet, which comes down from um, where well, you can access it from Cologne is probably the easiest jumping on spot uh, from the UK. And that will 
deliver you to the Austrian Alps in the morning. But St Anton, I've been out to you by train before. You had amazing snow last year with no one in resort. How's it looking for this winter? I know uh, Helen said, oh, new lifts. Do you have any new six-seater chairlifts? We we do, but not in St Anton, but in the Alba we do. Um, okay. So a, a few years ago, you probably remember, they, they connected um, St Anton to, to, to Leckenzers with a with a, an all singing or dancing sort of new chairlift and gondola system which sort of links all of the like the famous white circuit i guess um and now to make it even better they've they've added a i think a six seater chairlift where which was a two liter a two seater chairlift um from Zurs that's where you ski down into the little village of Zug before skiing into Lek um and from the bottom of Zug they've added a a gondola which will take you a lot quicker than the old, old rickety two-man chairlift um, up to the top of Lek, basically. Um, and that's going to be running into the evening. They've got a great restaurant at the top of the mountain there called the Balmo, which um, they uh, they hope to be using more in the evenings as well. So that's that's the only really new things on on the lift side of stuff. Um, it just makes the whole, I guess, Alberg a bit more connected, a bit quicker, a bit easier to ski the whole of like the the, the White Ring, um, that famous Weiser-Rausch race. Um Otherwise, there's not that much new in terms of the, the actual slopes themselves. Well, I mean, it's a brilliant ski area already. I mean, you know, I love going out to St. Anton and actually learned to ski there when I was a, a, a little kid a long time ago. One thing I don't want to, you know, go on about COVID and everything so much. One of the things uh, uh, St. Anton is very famous for is the Apre ski. The big uh, kind of uh, Musavert KK gathering at the end of the day. Do you think that's going to be or is that going to be different? this year significantly in the light of what's been going on? I, I think it's going to be slightly different. I, I don't know how it's going to be different. I think for sure there's going to be um, checking, you know, vaccine passes and everything we just talked about is when people go into the bars. Um, there was talk last season, which obviously didn't didn't happen, that it would be at Preski, but it's all, it would all be like a table service. There'd be no, like, dancing or no you know but what austria said anton is quite famous for is that you know dancing in your ski boots on the tables um and whatnot but i there's definitely the demand for it i mean it, it's the first question we we get asked when anyone's booking a holiday is is the apres ski still normal is it all still going ahead speaking to the owners of the apres ski bars they all very w- much want it to go ahead um i think people you know can't wait to have a huge party um, on the side of the slopes and ski down at eight o'clock in the evening in the moonlight. I think it's a it's a wonderful thing to do. Um, whether it's allowed, I think it'll be allowed. I think it'll be slightly restricted. Yeah, I mean, talking about the the owners of Apre Ski Bars, uh, a mutual friend of ours, uh, Andre Russell, who owns uh, Bar Cuba in town, which uh, a place I've had many uh, great uh, evenings. I noticed, I don't often go onto Facebook, but he had a post on Facebook a little while ago, which was really a kind of lament to the end of season worker uh, life. And I think there have been a lot of challenges in relation to Brexit and uh, recruitment. I wondered uh, what your insight would be on that. Um, Yeah, it's it's a minefield, really. Um, I'm not sure the podcast's long enough to have all my complaints (laughs) and moans. But um, no, the obvious fallout of Brexit is, is, is quite, quite bad in terms of, UK citizens being able to work uh, in Europe. Um, there's been a few things, I think, in the press that there's there's the option to be able to do it in France, but that's still a very long-winded and quite expensive way with no certainty or guarantee at the end of it of actually getting these work permits. Um, we've got the same situation in, in, in Austria where 
they're only issuing issuing a certain number of permits um, for seasonal workers, um, and UK now falls under that third national third nation country or, or, or whatever they call it that we we not part of the EU, so we not entitled to come and work there, which obviously takes away tons of jobs. Um, we employ about forty to fifty people in the Alps each winter, and this year we're only looking for people with EU passports because it's just such a long, complicated quite expensive process to go just to get a work permit um, and then to be told that they're only going to give work permits probably to qualified qualified applicants so like chefs for example that have an actual qualification um, for your sort of chalet host which is obviously a really important job um, that, that, that we employ for they they don't class it as a you know recognized qualification in in, in, in a job so they're probably only going to be giving out permits for uh, for, for chefs maybe maybe managers maybe people with a particular skill set um but otherwise it's going to be quite tricky and obviously more expensive for uk based based operators to to go about it it almost sounds like the travel situation yeah every country seems to have their own rules in place there's no consistency across uh, all of europe which makes it difficult for a company like yours you know kaluma travel where you're employing people in france and in austria as well yeah. So, so a lot of challenges uh, overall. Well, uh, you know, I hope that with, um, as with uh, travel within COVID, which has become uh, simpler, maybe we find that as time passes, uh, being a third world country in the eyes of EU, or third uh, category country in terms of the EU, it will become easier to uh, employ people. Now, hopefully, Andy, you'll come back and give us some uh, snow reports during the season and update us on how things are going. Love to. Yep. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, I'm just going to um, move on uh, now. Uh, regular listeners will recall I hosted uh, a forum at the uh, recent ski launch event uh, for the industry last month. And one of our sessions had a focus on the Olympics. I had Graham Bell and Emily Sarsfield uh, with me, both of whom have been guests on the podcast before. Now, the sound quality isn't so good on this, but I think it's still worth uh, listening to. So uh, let's hear what they had to say. Um, in terms of conditions... Um, I've never skied in China. Um, I've been there for the World Triathlon Championships. I've been there for the World Fencing Championships, but I've never actually skied there. Um, having talked to a, a few people who've been out there um, and have worked out there, it's, it's as bitterly cold as South Korea is and very, very windy. Um, I talked to Pat Sharples recently about the, uh, the freestyle events that are going to be taking place out there and a similar situation in the, uh, uh, what do they call it, the garden, the uh, secret garden, that's it, the secret garden, the windy secret garden. Uh, wind is going to be a big issue um, again um, for uh, the freestyle and it was a massive issue for the, for the I think you remember the women's uh, snowboard slope style, they were getting completely blown off. Um, and, and, then, and in Pyeongchang for, for a slalom to be delayed. Um, that was quite incredible. Um, I was going. I was actually going to go up on course inspection to have a look at the women's slalom, and uh, one of the Finnish guys, Kali Palander, who's the next world champion, just come, just come down. He said, "Graham, don't get on the chairlift. If it stops, you will die." <laughs> and coming from a Finn who are used to the cold, I was like, "I'm not getting on the chair." <laughs> so the race got cancelled or moved back. Now the next games I was fully fit and was there ready to go to 2014. Now this time I missed out on politics. Now that was something as an athlete, control the controllables I couldn't control. They were in control of it. 
And that was even harder for me as an athlete than anything I'd ever had to deal with before because I couldn't put those stepping stones in place and I had no control of it. So it was really difficult and, and Ian actually said, I know you were really angry at the time. I, I was angry. I was, because I was, I was grieving, I literally just lost this dream, lost this big thing which I had done everything in my life to achieve. So it took a while for me to overcome that, but I suddenly had this kind of like flick and it was like a little bit of a reframe. I'd, I'd done my journey different to a lot of my peers. I didn't have the coach, I didn't have the funding, and I, you know, I could sit there and I could be negative about all these things. But I basically had to turn all of these things on their head and use them as positives because they were what made me stronger. There was those little moguls on my journey which I had to just work a new way around to achieve the goal, which then built me as an athlete and built me stronger and as, yeah, it got me ultimately to the games in 2018. Not the only one that's switching sports. Uh, uh, Greg Rutherford, the uh, long jumper, the gold medalist, part of those uh, London Olympic gold medal winning Super Saturday. Um, he's switching to bobsleigh. So, um, yeah, it's not the only one. It's happening all over. They just, these summer Olympians, they can't leave it alone. <laughs> I'm more and more keen on this. I went to five Olympics as an athlete. I didn't go to a single opening ceremony. I was there to compete. And the most important thing for me was the downhill course um, because you know the, the race piece, that is the most important thing for me for any Olympic Games. What is the downhill course like? Um, and was it any good? Because it's, it's, it's different because even in Sarn, you, you got piece to piece, you know. Whereas in downhill, um, you know, some of the Olympic courses were nowhere near as, as up to scratch and as demanding as some of the courses we race on the World Cup. Uh, so for me, that was what the Olympic Games was about. It was like, what was the course like? Um, and yeah, I'm, and I'm not there to kind of make friends and have fun. <laughs> So, listen, I could release uh, more of this as a special. Uh, generally, I prefer good quality audio. Um, I think what they had to say was interesting. So, you know, listeners, uh, let me know what you think. Would you like to hear more of what they had to say? In which case, I could probably release it as a, a special episode. Um, drop me an email to theskipodcast at gmail.com. Now, one final note on Beijing. Uh, recently, they've announced that uh, anyone who's not double vaccinated is going to require a 21-day quarantine prior to the event. That could be interesting. I think there might be some athletes out there who'll either be changing flights or booking vaccinations right now. Uh, and also on Beijing, um, if you haven't listened to it yet, uh, have a listen to our special interview with John Allen Butterworth about his conversion from snowboarding uh, and his time on the jump. Finally, on that section, talking about the jump, our first ever episode, which was uh, four years ago in September 2017, our lead story was that the jump had been cancelled. And I noticed this week, uh, sadly, uh, that Beth Tweddle is suing the show uh, as a result of her injury she had on the event. I'm going to drop a, a link to that in the show notes. And if anyone wants to listen to episode one, you can find it out there on, on Spotify and uh, everywhere else you download your podcasts. Now, um, Alan, um, I'm going to bring you into the conversation. You've been uh, waiting for us uh, very politely. Uh, great to have you live uh, on the show uh, again. It's turning into a bit of a regular spot, this, which is great. Last time around, you were updating us about skis from uh, Dina Star. Um, today, what do you want to uh, give us an update on in the lead up to the season? Well, I've been testing more kit, but actually one of the things I've had lots of conversations with 
skiers about in recent seasons is confusion over ski boots, which ski boots they should get. So it's just to kind of help people understand more about that situation. Okay, so if I'm, you know, I'm thinking about getting new boots. Um, currently, I'm pretty sure the ones I have are what are called Alpine boots, but I think I probably made a mistake when I got them and I should have got hybrid boots that allow me to do ski touring as well. Yeah, I mean, that is a really interesting question because that's the route that many people go down. So, I mean, going back a long time in ski boots, they used to, they used to be far simpler. You'd have a flat sole boot on a regular downhill skiing boot. You'd have a curved grippy sole if you want to go ski touring and hiking. And then for the really technical tourers, you'd have boots with pin insets. And then 2012... The uh, Amma brands, as Salomon primarily brought out a curved sole and adaptation of the Turing one called Walk to Ride. And then 2016-17, there's a, a group, Marco Dalbello Volkel, and they brought out Grip Walk, which again was an adaptation of the curved Turing sole. Things have settled down. It's far less confusing now. Almost all new boots that you buy for regular skiing have a Grip Walk sole. And then you've got a flat sole boot, which is more the domain of racing now, although they are looking at grip walk for racing norms. And then you get a curved touring sole. So that's a bit simpler. I don't, I don't think I've even thought about what the sole of the boot is like. It's more about the flexibility. That Alpine boot I've got is quite a stiff one. And for touring, you want something that's got much more flex in it. And the, the hike and ride boots have the the pin inserts at the front so you can just put them onto touring skis you don't need to have different boots for touring as well can you can you simplify it in layman terms for what the choices are if you want to buy boots yeah yeah absolutely so so now that we have a really consistent kind of normalized standards on the bottom of the boot so you can get around you can walk on them you can still tour the area that people are primarily getting confused with is they'll buy as you referred to you said oh well i was thinking about getting you know an, a, a boot which would allow me to do touring and then they're also using it on a performance piste ski and not realizing how that may or may not compromise their skiing, you know, the performance of the product that they're on. So for you, you're on a regular performance piste boot and that works brilliantly with a piste ski. Now you can get bindings to use that and go touring, but it doesn't tour so well. So pe lots of people go, right, well, I'll get a, a good performance boot. It, the modern boots, many of them have a walk mode on the back and then I'm getting the best of both worlds. Well, we'll come back to the old kind of uh, jack of all trades and master of none here, because yes, you can tour on it, but they do not ski as well as a performance piece. But the brands will tell you they do. The marketing tells you that they do. We've tested hundreds of setups of touring boots with piece skis, performance piece boots with touring skis, big fat free ride skis with all of those kind of boots. And we've got a really good handle on what works and what doesn't and we would encourage everybody to match up the boot with the type of skiing that they're going to do so if i'm a, like a regular holiday maker let's say and i go out for um maybe i go out for like one week kind of recreational skiing a year but i also go out on a weekend of uh, ski touring with my friends what, what what should i be doing then hiring my uh, touring boots for the uh, weekend bit if we were totally honest we'd say get a Good performance piece boot. If you're going to be performance piece skiing, you will have a better time, a better experience, really be able to use the performance of the ski. And then for those infrequent sessions when you might go touring, hire a touring specific boot. They're lighter, they have a much better walk mode, and they work better with that lighter weight touring product. The really great area is in the middle where you get a performance boot. So it's still got the, the flex, 
rating of a downhill boot, but it has functions that allow you to tour. It's got a curved sole, it's got pin inserts, it's got a walk mode. Be aware that that will not give the same lateral drive as a piece boot. It's very close. They are getting very close. Recently, we were testing a new boot from Lang, that's, and it's called the XT3 Tour boot. And this has a flex rating. The one that we were in, the Pro, has a 130 rating, like a performance piece boot. It's got a curved sole like a touring boot. So it doesn't work in grip book bindings and things. It's got pin and sits. And that's when people can get really confused. It skis brilliantly well, but it will only work in a certain set of bindings. Okay. And, you know, most people don't go ski touring, despite the fact that it's clearly, you know, growing. So if I'm like a recreational skier, there's probably lots of different boots available and they the more expensive ones are the stiffer ones that are great for racing, etc. What what am I getting for you know at that end of the market? What how is it going to help me? The reason that they're more expensive is is to do with well obviously development costs, but the materials that are used in them. In softer rating boots, they can use a lot of that surplus plastics from molding the higher grade boots in those softer flexes, but they can't recycle those plastics into the stiffer boots currently so there is a higher cost for those they just use more expensive materials the liners are better you get a much snugger performance fit around your foot and can drive better power into the boot but that's not for everybody if you are skiing more gently maybe on intermediate on advanced skier and you want something that's going to be easy to get around in walk about town a walk mode is a good idea but just be aware that if you're going to use it on a stiff performance ski, you are losing out on performance. And if you're going to use it for touring, it will not tour as well as a touring boot. So it's about matching the kit together. And is a more expensive boot going to make me a better skier? Or does it just give me the potential to be a better skier? It might make you feel like you are a better skier. But no, if you go in a boot that is too stiff or doesn't fit you because it's too narrow, you're going to compromise your skiing. The boot has to work for your feet. This is really key. More people are ordering boots online and actually you're losing out because the expertise in a ski shop, when they can ensure that because of the shape of your foot, your leg, your body shape, they can see you moving about in the shop. They'll get an idea of what's going to work for you. They can get you in a limited selection of boots and then they'll really be able to dial in that foot. In, in that fit for you. You can't replace that expertise. Often people think I'll go and buy cheap online, but cheaper doesn't mean better value. I think uh, that, I mean, to me, that would seem pretty weird buying your ski boots online because you know that they're, they, if you get it wrong, they can be really uncomfortable. So that is never going to uh, work. Well, that's, that's really interesting, uh, Al. I think, you know, we, we could like Andy talk about uh, Brexit hmm. and things like this. You know, we could talk about these things um, on and on, but hopefully you're going to join us uh, uh, next time around and we can discuss another element of uh, equipment. And listener, you can find out more of our uh, reviews and look them up at skikitinfo.com. Right, just to finish off, I'm going to um, play a little interview I did recently with Kimberly Kay about her new book, Ski A to Z. So I'm here with uh, Kimberly Kay. Uh, and Kimberly is the author of a new book that's just come out called Ski A to Z, an illustrated guide to skiing. Hi, Kimberly, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? Uh, I'm good, thank you. I've just been looking through. I've been lucky enough to see have a sort of what would you call a, like a review copy of the uh, book. And uh, yeah, A to Z, it's trying to demystify uh, skiing, I think. Um, who would you say this book is uh, for, Kimberly? It's for people that um, that maybe don't have a friend that skis. So say you want to try skiing and you really don't know where to start. You don't know anyone particularly that skis. 
but the book will help to give you the information to be able to enable you to feel like you can embark on skiing. Right. Okay. And now one of the things that really uh, struck me about it is it's packed full of uh, illustrations. Did you do those yourself as well? Yep. All the writing, all the illustrations, cover design. Right. Okay. Have you have you been uh, skiing for a long time? Oh, yeah. I've been skiing since I was five years old, so over 40 years. I was brought up in Rosendale, so kind of grew up on, on ski Rosendale. Right. Okay. Yeah, I know that uh, uh, slope uh, well. Um, yeah. Skied there once or twice uh, before, and uh, a key uh, key slope for the uh, north there. Now it's obviously an A to Z book. There's lots of different you know uh, terms, and it's not just um, kind of one uh, explanation for each letter. Um, I wondered if there are any letters where you found it particularly difficult to come up with uh, some options for it. I did. Um, there were some of the letters that were more difficult than others. I reached out actually through um, Facebook Ski Club um, to to get some suggestions from members, for people to be able to feed in a little bit to the book. Some are, are less obvious than others. Like for example, X. You maybe might have wanted to choose X Games or an X Jump, but really, kind of the ski thing that's the key. The key thing is represented in skiing by an X is when you cross your skis after an accident or an incident. So there's some things that are a little bit more. Um, a bit more lateral than than you might think. But okay, we'll come, really what, you know, there's no spoilers. People will have to buy the book to find out. But what about Q? What comes up in Q? Q is, unfortunately, skier's nightmare, the Q. But also, <laughs> but also, <laughs> but also balanced with quiz because, um, you know, if you go on a chalet holiday, often there's the, uh, the holiday companies want you to, you know, go along to a quiz in the middle of the week. So there's some questions in there for people to answer. Um, well, is that, that's certainly true. When I was doing ski seasons, I'd like to think that the quiz was the highlight of the week for our uh, our guests uh, out in resort. Um, and under why, I think I noticed a Yeti in there as well. Now, is that uh, misleading beginners or new new people to the sport suggest they might see a Yeti during their holiday? No, I think it's just. I think it can be something that can capture capture imagination, particularly of younger skiers. I think if you if you're trying to keep them from from tearing around in the uh, in the woods and and keep disappearing off east, you might want to warn them about a yeti. Um, uh, but but some kids might might actually head off. Be more likely to head off east if they think they can find a yeti. So, but it's just uh, yeah. I said in the book that you know, are they the ones that create the uh, those 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 tracks through? fresh new powder before the lifts even open that you kind of think who's been out this early and made those tracks you know and that cool water or whatever so maybe yeah. excellent well you know possibly a good way to keep your uh, your younger children in line on, on your holiday as well so um it's called um ski a to z there's a subtitle as well isn't there an illustrated guide to uh, skiing is it available yet when's it available so you can pre-order it now. You can order it through any bookshop. Um, you can order it online and it's priced at £12.95. So delivery of the actual hard copy book, which I just can't wait to be able to get, is um, is around the 1st to the 3rd of December. OK, excellent. Well, I'll put a link in the show notes uh, and listeners, you can have a look at that or just Google Ski A to Z by Kimberly K. That's brilliant, Kimberly. Thanks very much and wish you all the best. Thank you. Have a great season, everyone. So that was Kimberly with her book, uh, Ski A to Z. It sounds like it could be a good stocking filler for ski newbies and kids. 
We'll finish off now. I've got a couple of uh, reviews here. Joe McHugh, he says, thanks, Ian, for keeping the skiing vibe on life support during COVID times. Well, hopefully that's going to end, but we'll still keep the skiing vibe going. Uh, Inside Morzine said, well worth a listen. Ian's podcasts are always essential listening. Greg Hilton, loving the podcast, Ian. And Mike Greenland pointed out that in the last episode, I got a bit confused about where Lauterbrunnen is. Of course, it's part of the Jungfrau. I was confusing it with Adelboden. So I uh, do appreciate reading all feedback about the show. Uh, please do email me at skipodcast.gmail.com. And if you can give us a review on uh, iTunes or Apple Podcasts, that's great. Uh, and let other people know about the podcast. And if you do enjoy the podcast, you can always buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash the ski podcast. Hello, it's Ian here. Stop press alert. This only came in after we'd recorded everything else. But regular contributor Alex Irwin from Courcheval sent in this report. And it's quite important, so I've included it here. Hi, Ian. Alex from 150 Days of Winter with an October update from Courcheval. Well, bad news for the Celia cable car. Just confirmed from S3V, the lift operator in the Three Valleys, that the Celia cable car will be out of action for the 21-22 winter season. The accident happened when performing a biannual stress test, running it at maximum load and maximum speed, way more than in normal operation. These tests are performed to ensure the absolute safety of passengers in normal public use. This will definitely affect access to the Grand Couloir and the Celia restaurant from the Courcheval side, requiring either a hike up from the Vizel bubble or a ski down to Meribel and a return up in the Meribel bubbles. Although not the only link to the Three Valleys, it will put more stress on the Vizel bubble and the Codolos chairlifts. And on that bombshell, this has been Alex from 150 Days of Winter reporting from Courcheval. Uh, otherwise, that's going to be it for today. We're going to be recording our next episode just before the National Snow Show at the end of this month at the Birmingham NEC. Uh, if you are thinking about coming, I will be there uh, on both Saturday and Sunday. Be uh, very happy to meet any of our listeners. And we will be doing the ski podcast live on the Sunday at 11.45. So uh, maybe I'll see you there. And otherwise, you'll be able to hear the next episode of the ski podcast in a couple of weeks time. So, um, Andy, thank you very much for joining us from St. Anton today. Thanks very much. Look forward to the uh, to the next one. Um, Alan, Ski Kit Info. Thanks very much, Al. As always, thank you, Ian. It's a pleasure to be here. Katie's still here with us. Thanks very much, Katie, from Battleface. It's been an absolute pleasure, Ian, as always. And Helen, thanks very much for joining us for the first time. Best of luck uh, this winter taking the train, hopefully out the Alps for a ski trip as well. Thanks for having me. Excellent. And listener, thank you for joining us. <laughs> <laughs>